0: But it is good to be with you this morning. It's good to see so many familiar faces that I know from Village Seven. And Village Seven sends their greetings. We are just so excited to see what God has been doing uh, through grace and peace. And honestly, I I love to preach. I'm excited to be here, but I'm almost more excited that I could just participate because otherwise it'd have to be over there. So it's fun to, to be with you guys this morning to see. What God is doing, Uh, it's just been such a fun journey, as Vince and I did uh, office next to each other for several years, and we, I mean, so many conversations as he planned, and we prayed for grace and peace, and even before that, we went way back, uh, we were on staff with crew together. He was director down in New Mexico, I was director up here, and uh, friends introduced us because they heard we were reformed, and then I realized I wasn't because Vince is way more reformed than me, but uh, no, this is a joke. But it is, it is really a joy to be here, and uh, we are so excited to see what God has done uh, through, through this church and how you're going to reach out to the city. Um, you know, we are looking at the sixth sign of Jesus in the Gospel of John this morning. I think uh, there, are, there are seven signs in John where Jesus comes and he shows that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, and that we are to believe in him and we can because he is the Christ. And as we go through these, it's just an amazing picture of who Jesus is. And I think you covered the seventh sign last week at Easter, which was Lazarus being raised from the dead. And in the sixth sign, we see Jesus giving sight to a blind man. A man who's been blind from birth, and Jesus steps in and cures him of his blindness. I don't know if you've ever thought much about what it's like to be blind What it's like to live in darkness. I don't know if you've ever played a game where you ended up blindfolded and someone had to move you around. Maybe at least you've uh, played pinata or done a pinata where they blindfold you and and give you a stick and tell you to swing it, which is kind of a horrible idea if you think about it. It's just sort of fodder for a YouTube fail blog video or something. But uh, have you ever spent much time in darkness and sort of felt what it's like? Many of you maybe know uh, a pretty famous vlogger on YouTube. His name is Casey Neistat. And Casey has this really big vlog. He does lots of fun things. But a couple years ago, he had a young woman on who had her own YouTube channel, but she is blind. And she was kind of recounting how she went about making her videos. But as she lived in darkness, there wasn't a whole lot she could do. She needed her mom's help for almost every step of the way. She would have, her mom would have to set up the camera, make sure it was in focus, make sure the lighting was okay, make sure she was actually looking at the camera. And afterwards, of course, after she delivered the content, she, the, her mom would have to do the video editing. She was completely dependent on others for even how she tried to uh, make her career and, and make a living. And, you know, after they were done with the interview, she blindfolded Casey and wanted to show him what it was like to live in her world, and they went for a walk in New York City, along the streets of New York, and he was blindfolded, and he would later recount that it was really scary. They had, the, they had the guide dog, and they would walk across the street, and he'd be like, wait, how do we know if the light's green? Well, the dog lets us go. How do we know if we're getting to the curb and we don't trip? The dog will stop. They get to the coffee shop. How do I know that I'm getting my right order And that the the clerk isn't ripping me off. You don't. You just have to trust. And as he took it off, as they finished, he goes, that was really jarring and really scary. It was jarring and it was scary. And she kind of recounts, you know, um, I've been this way for a long time. And I've learned how to live life this way. And for me, it's not jarring and scary. And she said, it's normal. And in my heart, I was kind of like, no, it's not. It's not supposed to be normal. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. And the illustration breaks down kind of quickly here. If, if you know anyone who's blind or, you know, as we're here in this broken world and people don't, uh, there are people who don't have sight, we, of course, want them to feel as much as possible as they can have a normal life. And we want to help them do it in every way we possibly can. But in the kingdom, when Jesus comes back, and makes everything right, this is one thing that won't exist. There won't be blindness. And Jesus steps in and fixes it. But in scripture, blindness doesn't just mean physical blindness. Almost every time blindness is talked about in the Bible, it's not just physical blindness, but it's spiritual blindness as well. And in our passage, Jesus cures both. As the story goes, I didn't have it all read, but as, as this blind man is given his sight, the, they're, they're getting in a lot of trouble with the Pharisees. I'll talk about that later. He ends up getting kicked out of the synagogue. But Jesus comes to him later, and he says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and worshiped him. So not only was his vision cured physically, he was brought vision spiritually. Colossians 1.13 says, um, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He'd been brought from darkness, to the kingdom of his son. And Jesus says in our passage, I am the light of the world. He'd been brought from darkness to light. I don't know if many of you, uh, those of you who have glasses or contacts, maybe can experience this. The rest of you can maybe imagine it. I still have pretty good sight, so I've never worn glasses. But I remember hearing Kendra tell me the story. Her eyes are horrible. And she said, That's my wife. She's sitting over there. But um, she said, The first time she put on glasses, It was like seeing all over again. She saw that there were cracks in the wall or textures on the drywall, and I remember my son kind of did the same thing when he got his glasses the first time. You're seeing things that you never knew were there, because when you're in darkness, you're not seeing the world how it actually is, and that's what Jesus does to us spiritually. He brings us along to see the world how it actually is. That He is the Christ, that He is the Messiah, that we can believe in Him, and that. He makes us new. But one of the problems is we still have our old eyes, spiritually speaking. Our old man is dead, he's no longer alive, but he's hanging on. Our, it's as if our old eyes are hanging on, and we can still look through them. And when we do that, that creates all sorts of problems. It's, it's a source of, of angst, it's a source of sin. And uh, if you guys remember, if you've seen um, any of the original, there's a pretty young crowd here, but any of the original Superman movies with Christopher Reeves, um, you know, way back, I think, late 70s, early 80s. And I think every single reiteration of Superman has continued this iconic move. But Clark Kent, if you remember Clark Kent, what was Clark Kent, not Superman, but Clark Kent's signature move? What was his signature move? He had his, yeah, there's that. That's like in between Clark Kent and Superman. But uh, he was always readjusting his glasses. Do you remember that? Clark Kent, he's doing doing this move to readjust his glasses. Classic, iconic Clark Kent move. And he was adjusting them because if you've had glasses, they can can slide down your nose, or if something happens to you, they can get crooked, or they can get dirty, and you need to readjust them. You need to re-see through those lenses because they slip off, and spiritually we forget we forget this beautiful world that we can now see. We forget God's disposition towards us. We forget his character. And when those glasses slip and we begin to see differently as if we're blind again, um, we end up with stuff like what we confessed in our confession of sin this morning. I'm going to walk you through just a teeny bit of it. Um, this is kind of how it looks when, when those glasses get out of place and they need to be pushed back up. We We confessed but we take, our generous, we take your generous grace for granted and blind ourselves to your sustaining hand. We believe foolish fantasies of our freedom. We believe the lie that we reap blessing and success by our own talents, money, and effort. Do you ever, do you ever find your... I mean, we confessed it this morning, but do you ever see yourself doing that? And we applaud ourselves rather than honoring you And we are anxious rather than thankful. When we begin to see the world askew, that's how we see it. If you evaluate yourselves this morning, if you see yourselves in that. Because what we need to do is have a readjustment of the glasses. Because when we do, we see Christ for who he really is. And we see a love that is awesome. There's a song we sang at Easter last week, and it's uh, as I survey the wondrous cross. And the final line of that song is, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. So we need to readjust our lenses to see God's ultimate reality and worship him, just as the blind man later worships him. We need to see this in three different areas. And I think the first one, we need to readjust our lenses to see that God is not out to punish you. This happens right at the beginning of our passage. Right as they enter the, the city it says, As he passed by, he Jesus saw a blind man from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now this would have been a very normal belief uh, back then in ancient religions. Um, you know, it was often believed that if you're suffering, if something is going wrong in your life, then you've done something wrong. God is punishing you. This also crept its way into Judaism. If you're doing something wrong, God is punishing you. Nothing that has happened to you is anything but your own sin and things that have gone wrong. And it was true then, and I think it's pretty true today too. This is true outside of the church as people look at Christianity. They think that's, that's what it's about. You get in, and, and if you do good, you get good. If you do bad, you get bad. And I think that's crept into the church a lot as well. We tend to see the world that way as well. I know in, in my own story, it has been that way a lot. Just, you know, you're looking over your shoulder, you know, if, if, have I done too much that finally punishment is going to come or have I, have I not done enough and therefore just sinning and God's looking to punish me. He's out to get me. And I'm, my story, I, I grew up Catholic and I don't know specifically if I was taught this or not, but I certainly adopted it, a belief like this. And it, it followed me. I mean, to this day, it followed me through my life. And I know after I graduated college, I went on a mission trip uh, for a year to Spain. And uh, some of you may have heard this story before, but I, uh, it, it was hard. I didn't, getting the support was hard. I saw God move in great ways to get me over there. And, and I remember I get there, the, the team had already been there for a couple of weeks. And uh, I joined them, and we are gonna go out on our very first day. I hadn't even been there 24 hours. We're going out on our first day to uh, do a tertulia. And in Spanish, that's like a bull session. It was our English practice session that we would use to get to know people. And uh, first, we were gonna go get sandwiches. And so we went to a Bocadillo restaurant, Bocadillo in Spanish is a sandwich. And I got in there and, and I mean, I was tired. I was jet lagged. My Spanish was far from where it was going to end up being. And we got into the restaurant and I'm looking at the menu at all the sandwiches and I see queso y bacon. And queso, we all know what queso is, right? That's cheese. And bacon is B-A-C-O-N. That's bacon. So I'm like, I can get a cheese and bacon sandwich. This will be easy. And so I ordered it and we, we go out there and you know, you'd know, you think that this would be easy, but it turns out nothing in Spain was about to be easy for me because in Spain, their bacon is much different than ours. First of all, they barely cook it, which I like crispy bacon. Second of all, when, when they form it, they don't take any of the bones or gristle out of the meat. And so I'm sitting there with the students, and I take my first bite of this sandwich. I bite into a bone. I think this is bacon and cheese. And I bite into a bone, and I kind of peel it. It's kind of like, ugh. And I peel it out, and there's all these little white spots on the bacon of the gristle and the bone. And... Uh, I, hate, I hated it, and I was having a hard time eating it, and so I didn't really know what to do. I, I couldn't really swallow it, um, and I would kind of tear it loose with my teeth a little bit, and when no one was looking, I'd fling it on the ground so that the, that the bone would fall out, and I kept doing that over and over, and it, it turned out this wouldn't be the first time I would do this. They eat outside a lot, and uh, I, I became known as the guy who had a mess around his feet, but uh, maybe a little sloppy, maybe a little dumb, but they never knew I was hating on their food, so I did... Pull off at least that. But uh, it was about to get way worse than me. Not only, or for me, not only did I hate the food, but as I got to know the Spaniards, they weren't like me at all. They didn't care about the things I care about, they didn't agree on the things I thought was important. Politically, we were night and day different, and they weren't huge fans of America. And I found myself not liking them very much. Here I had come to witness Christ to these people. And I couldn't stand them. I go back and read my journals, and it's kind of embarrassing. I didn't like the Spaniards at all. And it was to get worse. As I got to um, hang out with my team a lot, I started to not like them too. They were prideful. They were selfish. They weren't doing things the way I knew things needed to be done. And I started to hate my team. Now, much of this was brought on uh, by culture shock and culture stress. But nobody had told me that. Beforehand, it would have been very helpful, but I saw so much sin, pride, selfishness. It was Europe, lust played in, it was all there. And I felt awful. And this is what I heard God saying to me Steve, you are way too messed up for me to use you in the lives of the Spaniards. We're done. You might grow some this year, but sorry, you're too messed up, you're too sinful. It's not going to happen. The other six people on the team can minister to the Spaniards, but you're not going to be able to. I had a serious lack of understanding of God's disposition towards me. I want to show you, I'm going to read a passage out of Isaiah, or Hosea, sorry, that I think really would have been helpful to me back then, but it shows us that God is not out to punish us. This is God talking of Israel, his child. In chapter 11 of Hosea, he says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away and kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, and they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. But yet they still continued to turn their back on God. They rejected him. They think of the worst insult, and that's what they were throwing to God. So he talks about the judgment he's going to bring. And he says, They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, Consume the bars of their gates and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. Here goes the next two verses. It's like God's heart hits him. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? Basically, how can I forget you? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. That, Is God's disposition towards us. In Christ, it's his disposition towards us, and he can do this because it was Christ who paid the price for our sins. Romans 5, 8, 9 says, but God shows us his love for, I'm sorry, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. God is not out to punish us because he punished his son. Now, to be fair, God can bring discipline into our lives because of our sin. And that discipline can often feel like suffering. I talked to a young man yesterday who had gotten himself in trouble Uh, a whole lot of trouble in a whole lot of ways and God was bringing some serious discipline into his life and he was going to have to make some hard decisions and it was suffering. But here's what was so key for you to understand, for he to understand, for myself to understand that as we're experiencing discipline, there is absolutely not one single drop of anything in it that's punitive. It is not punishment. There is no drop of God trying to get back at us. There is no drop of uh, avenging himself, or revenge, it is completely for our good. Hebrews 11 and Revelation tells us that he disciplines those whom he loves. And that's gonna change how you look at it completely because you won't have to fear it. You can know that it's absolutely for you. So we need to readjust those lenses, kind of push them up. Because when we see it, we see love so amazing, so divine. It demands our soul, our life, our all. That's what happens when we readjust the lenses. So we need to readjust the lenses to see that God is not out to punish us. We need to readjust the lenses secondly to see God's grace. Grace and peace. We talk all about grace. We were praying about it earlier, but grace, simply put, one of my favorite definitions, it's God's unconditional, unearned, one-way love, of people who don't deserve it. It's God's unconditional love and favor empowered on people who don't deserve it, who can't earn it. And that's exactly what happens in our passage. I lost it. Let me get back to it. Uh, As they enter into town, this is really cool. As they pass by, like I said, they saw the blind man, the the disciples ask him, Why is he blind? Jesus puts it down right away. It's not their sin. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but the works of God may be displayed in him. He explains it, and then it says in verse six, having said these things, he spat on the ground, made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. Put yourself in the man's shoes for a quick second. He's sitting there blind. The the disciples and Jesus are somewhere over here, and they have this conversation about him. I don't think there's nothing indicating that that the blind man saw him, well, obviously didn't see him, knew he was there, heard him. He's just kind of sitting here on his own in darkness, right? Jesus is having this conversation. I don't think he heard it, and all of a sudden, maybe, you know, he, he senses that someone walks up to him. Maybe he hears him spit on the ground, and then something gets wiped on his eyes, He might have known what mud was. I don't know if it was hot or cold. It's kind of gross. But he he feels this. And then he's told to go wash in, in the pool. And when he does, he's blind. What did the blind man do to get his eyes opened? Absolutely nothing. He didn't know that Jesus was there. He didn't know who Jesus was. He didn't know that he could ask. He didn't ask for help. He didn't cry out in pain. He was just there. It was 100% Jesus, 100% him who pursued him, 100% him who cured him. That's grace. And I think often we uh, forget that. Romans chapter 5 tells us that we stand in grace. It's the air In which we breathe. And it's easy to get past grace and think, yeah, grace was that thing that I needed when, you know, before. Because I was just like that. And it's huge. But we forget that we were just like that. And we need God's grace and mercy as much today as we did before we knew him. And we have it. It's where we stand. I mean, it's awesome. I mean, remember, like, we know our sins. We know our weaknesses. Yet we have his smile, his favor, his love bestowed on us despite it. I mean, the guy, just like us, he, he was Jewish. He was part of the temple. He would have been included in that story that I read from Hosea. He would have been part of the people of God who would turn their back on him. Jesus came in, boom, sight. And then at the end later, you know, he still hadn't seen him. Jesus walks up and said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he? It's me. Heck yeah, I do. And he worshiped him had his eyes readjusted so that he could worship Christ. And then you have the Pharisees. As the rest of the story goes, the Pharisees get really upset in chapter 9. It's great to read later, but they're mad that Jesus has cured this guy. And they're not going to depend on grace. Pharisees don't want to have anything to do with grace because they're depending on their own rules that even they had made up. And Jesus breaks a huge one because he cures this man on the Sabbath. He cured this man on the Sabbath, and that was big time against their rules. And they wanted, they wanted to kill him. They were afraid that Jesus would gather more followers than, than they would have. And, and they're already, chapters before, trying to figure out a way to kill Jesus. They don't want to have anything to do with grace because they're depending on their own following of rules. And it made them bitter. It, it, it made them want to punish people. They want to kick him out of the temple. They later, they later do. And I think it's really easy for us to be hard on the Pharisees. It's really easy to uh, look down on them. And uh, the more I think about it, the more I realize that sometimes I can be exactly like the Pharisees. And I can depend, I, part of what we confessed this morning, I can depend on my own good works to think that I'm okay with God. And I end up just like the Pharisees. And uh, in 2019, as i thought about it, I'm not so sure good works are even the point anymore. Nobody in culture or anything really cares what we do. What's almost more important, that's hyperbole. They still do. But what's almost more important is what we think, the opinions we have. That's how we get our standard in this society. If we have the right political opinion and put it on Facebook or Twitter, if whatever it is, if we like our president or we don't like our president and we put that out there, or, I mean, vaccines or this issue or that issue, if you have the right belief, which happens to be my belief, then everything's okay with you. And those who don't have those same opinions as us, I mean, we want to put them on blast, right? Have you ever been tempted, to, or maybe have, you know, I'm going to straighten you out and fix all of your problems on Facebook, right? And, and we want to blast them. But, but literally what we're doing, and, it's, and I do this, I'm super guilty of this all the time, I read this stuff, And I'm like, what a stupid person. I'm so much smarter than them that I have this all figured out. And they need to do it and think about it my way. I forgot about grace. I forgot that it's not about my opinions, right or wrong, that have gotten me anywhere. It's about God's grace. And when we see it, we have to have, you know, readjust, refocus, push those glasses up again all day long. However, many times we need to do it every day to continue to see God's grace. And when we do, love's so amazing, love's so divine. Do you you get where we're going here? It demands our worship as it did the man who was blind. And last, we need to readjust the lenses so that we can see what's unseen. How's that for making sense? We need to readjust our lenses so that we can see what's unseen. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says this. For our light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And how I long to see like this, to be focused on what is unseen. Paul is writing to the people of Corinthians as they're going through trials, and he's talking about the kingdom. When Jesus will come back, he's all about the kingdom. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the words kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven show up all the time. They're all over the place. They hardly show up in the Gospel of John. He says it maybe two or three times, but what's cool is I think the Gospel of John might actually focus more on the kingdom than the others do, I mean, hyperbole again, but every single miracle Jesus performs is a sign of the kingdom. He's all about the kingdom in all of the Gospels, and he's, when he comes back, he's gonna make everything okay. No more blindness, no more sin, no more death, and he wants us, Paul here, through the Spirit, to put our hope there. We need to readjust the lenses to see that God is going to make it all glorious in our broken world. It's a broken world, and we need to be reminded of this. And I was thinking through this week, what, what are some of the biggest brokenness? I, as a, as a pastor, as I work with adults or college students or whatever, what is some of the biggest brokenness I see? And most often, it's in relationships, marriage relationships, relationships within family. I work with college students. There's a lot of boyfriend-girlfriend relationships. Relationships are so broken, and when they're broken, you've experienced a broken relationship before. It can bring you down to your core. So what does it look like to see what's unseen in our relationships? And uh, I was reminded of a, a quote by Tim Keller. It's a concept by Tim Keller, actually, of the glory self that uh, Kendra and I use when we do premarital counseling for couples. And it's this idea about who God is making you. And, and the, the quote is in the context of marriage, but I think it can serve um, in the context of all of our relationships in the relationships with our family members and the relationships with our friends, boyfriend, girlfriend, friend, friend. But listen to this quote. I think this is awesome. This is how we see what's unseen in a place that tends to be super broken. Within the Christian vision for marriage, family, and friendship, here's what it means to love. It's to look at another person and get a glimpse of the person God is creating and say, I see who God is making you, and it excites me. I want to be a part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got a glimpse of it on earth, but now look at you. Each spouse or family member or friend should see the great things that Jesus is doing in the life of their friend through the word and the gospel. Each spouse and friend should then give himself or herself to be a vehicle for that work and envision the day you will stand together before God seeing each other presented in spotless beauty and glory. This is what, I mean, can you imagine what relationships would be like if you've been in in broken ones, what it would be like if that's the way we approach them? If we approach them, I see who God is making you, and I want to be a part of it. Instead of, I think God's making me into something, and I want you to be about me. Because it's that selfishness of the, of the glasses re-messed up that causes us to be that way. But to see somebody, think of all your relationships, to see who God is going to make that person. And that's how God sees them. He stands outside of time. There's two pieces here. He stands outside of time. He sees how you're going to be when you're perfectly glorified right now. And right now, he sees how you are perfected in Christ, And the call is to see what's unseen and see each other that way. Oh, what a difference that would make in our relationships. There's a back to Superman, full circle, in that very first movie with Christopher Reeves. Um, uh, uh, Clark Kent is supposed to take Lois Lane out on a date. You should go home and YouTube this because it's really fascinatingly cool. It's just a little clip. Clark Kent's supposed to take Lois Lane out on a, on a date, but Superman shows up first and takes her on a pre-date, I guess, and he flies her around like you could live up to that. And she's swooing and, and like cannot believe how awesome Superman is, and Superman's kind of falling in love with her. He drops her off, makes his switch, comes in the front door as Clark Kent, and she's getting ready for the date. She's like totally distracted, and he's standing in front of a mirror, and he's decided to tell Lois Lane who he is, that he's Superman. And uh, he takes off his glasses, he stands up tall, and before your eyes, on the screen, he turns into Superman. It's, it's insane. Like, like, seriously, it's cool. Watch it. Like, he, he takes off his glasses, and you, you see Superman right there. You see his magnificence, and on an infinitely greater scale, that's how Christ sees us. That's how God sees us, because we're in him, and the reason is He's created us to be that way. Ephesians 2.10. This is where I'm going to ask if you believe this. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That word, it says we are God's workmanship. That word workmanship is where we get the word poema. It's where we get poem. If God were to write a poem, what kind of poem would it be? It'd be the greatest poem ever made. It would be a masterpiece. I think it would be accurate to read this passage. We are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Just like the blind man who was over here, he was metaphorically in his sin, or maybe physically in his sin, he needed to be brought from darkness to light, but God did it. He was his masterpiece, just like us who still struggle in our sins do you believe, right now, with whatever you're dealing with, with whatever is in your life, God sees you as his masterpiece? I mean, you're going to have to fight with this a little bit, maybe, but you are God's masterpiece right now. If you are in Christ, if you have trusted him, that's what's true of you, and it's because of Jesus. Because you remember back in Hosea, I read that, I read that, that piece where God says, it, I recoil Within my heart, and I can't punish you. What's insane is what he wasn't allowed, able to bring himself to do to the people of Israel because he recoiled within his heart, he did to his son. On the cross, what he recoiled and couldn't do to his people, he did to his beloved son who had had a perfect relationship with him from infinity past perfect intimacy, and at that moment, what would have recoiled him to do, he turned his back on his son so that he would never have to turn his back on you. On the cross, he took our sin so that God wouldn't punish us. On the cross, he gave non-grace so that he could give grace. On the cross, Jesus was put into darkness so that we could be brought into the light. And I'll say it one more time, but that's love so amazing, so divine. It demands our heart, our soul, our, our all. And how do we adjust the glasses? Real quick, to be practical, we ad- you're adjusting the glasses by being here this morning, by being engaged in worship, by being in a city group, by putting yourself in the places where you can be reminded of these truths, where you can readjust the glasses, by studying the word, by being in prayer, it's it's the spiritual disciplines, it's being engaged, it's being plugged in, it's being about what Jesus is about, it's serving, it's sharing that light with others, all of those are part of what adjust the glasses so that we can worship God because we see how awesome his love is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your love. I thank you for your grace. I thank you that you have brought us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. I pray for anyone who might be here this morning who hasn't trusted that. I pray that as as they're here and we go through the book of John, that they see that you are indeed the Christ who loves them. We pray this morning more than anything. I pray that myself and each of us would see you as a beautiful Christ. And that would be struck that your love is so amazing, so divine, that we would give you our entire life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.